This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. In the field of psychology, attachment theory is one of the principal theories for understanding child development. Beginning in infancy, a child begins to form an attachment with their caregiver. In turn, these early interactions become internalized as internal working models that can affect behavior as they develop into adulthood. A key concept within this theory is that of attachment styles, which can describe the lasting feelings of trust and affection that characterize the relationship with caregivers. These attachment styles are frequently used as explanations for how people behave in relationships later on in adulthood. Children are born with a predisposition to form attachments to caregivers who are sensitive and consistently available. Sensitive caregiving creates strong, lasting bonds between infants and adults, which last into adulthood. It can be difficult for children who have had inconsistent or hostile childhoods to change how they interact in relationships but with the help of a therapist, they can realize how their early experiences have affected them and take steps to correct those problems. Valeria Tellez interviews Saman Nasir, a healer, meditation coach, certified hypnotherapist, a member of the American Hypnosis Association, instructor at the Hypnosis Motivation Institute, and speaker. Saman Nasir has been helping people make positive changes in their lives for over 10 years. Saman works with a network of psychologists, MFTs, and psychiatrists to provide the most comprehensive care for her clients. Saman is a kind and gentle practitioner and cares for all her clients as if they were her own family. Saman Nasir is a hypnotherapist and honors graduate from the Hypnosis Motivation Institute. When she graduated, she was invited to give a talk on how hypnosis deepens the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy. As she was giving a talk on this topic, the dean of HMI College was so impressed that he offered her a career as an instructor, which she gladly accepted. Today, she helps other hypnotherapy students and -and up-and-coming hypnotherapists perfect their craft as an instructor in various hypnotherapy classes and workshops. In addition, she has a professional background in coaching, hypnotherapy, leadership, and mindfulness that spans 20 years along. Though her private practice is based in Los Angeles, California, she has clients worldwide who virtually take advantage of her unique belief system enrichment approach that utilizes CBT, imagery, mindfulness, and NLP. Her true passion has always been using hypnosis to get answers from the subconscious, studying human behavior and helping people overcome the beliefs and emotions that hold them back from living their true lives. Meet Sammy at don'twaittolive.com. Here is the interview with Saman Nasir. Hey, 
In your own words, who is Saman Nasir today? Valerie, I would say Saman Nasir is someone that has an intense focus on healing and helping others heal from childhood traumas as well as PTSD and any incidents that they haven't made sense of. I'm here to reflect back, mirror, listen, um, actively engage and help people rewire those traumas. What inspired you to do what you do today? Well, Valerie, I think that when we have our own learnings, a lot of times we can't help but apply them to others. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. this also works with some negative traits. So for instance, if we are very critical with ourselves, we usually tend to focus that outwards to try to distract ourselves from the pain. So I think the, you know, the reverse happened with me. I had a lot of things I couldn't sort out because um, a lot of my role models were either, you know, they were too busy or they were detached or I didn't have access to them as a child. So I had to put together a lot of pieces for myself. So in doing so, I had some really big realizations and I thought it would be sad if, all of this development, all of this understanding just ended with me. Why don't I help others get here that may not have access to the same, you know, books and speakers that I, you know, that I listened to and I read about and the education that I had. So that's what really led me to this path of of helping others heal because there are so many things people don't know about the body and the mind-body connection. And a lot of times people try to do their healing all through the mind. And my goal is to bring an awareness of that connection between the mind and body, the nervous system, healing actually the cells of the body through experiencing different feelings in the body and then connecting it to the mind. So that's what really inspired me to to do this work. We often talk about childhood traumas a lot. Could trauma also happen every day in adulthood? Can we become traumatized in a major way? that could change our way of thinking and behaving in the world? Yes, absolutely. So we can have something so overwhelming happen that it overpowers our nervous system and we feel unable to cope. So what happens in those moments is because it's too big, the brain shuts down certain executive functioning. So it shuts down our hippocampus, our our memory center, our learning center, and it reverts to the more base mammalian sort of brain, um, the limbic brain. And there's a part of the brain called the amygdala that uh, responds to fear. That's just a knee-jerk response, survival response to fear. And when that happens, the brain can form associations such as I'm helpless or things are too big for me to solve or I'm overwhelmed, I'm destined to fail, things like that. Those are trauma responses because they're not in alignment with how we are at all times. They're just only in alignment with that particular circumstance. But because our executive functioning in that moment is shut down and that part of the brain is not getting lit up, whatever we are experiencing feels like the ultimate truth to us. So if I was backed and and cornered by, let's say, you know, a a man that I don't know, suddenly I'm I'm walking down the street and that happens to me, um, what my brain can form is saying I'm not safe in the world ever. It's not a very accurate reflection of what's happening in the moment. If my executive functioning was on, I would tell myself, okay, perhaps I need to be better at learning self-defense. Perhaps I need to have a better plan of which streets I can and can't walk. That's what would happen if my executive functioning was on. But because it wasn't on, I could form beliefs. Now, the difference between childhood trauma and adult trauma 
is that adult trauma, we still have a lot of our our, um, beliefs that we formed as children that can step in and help us in those moments. But childhood trauma is called complex developmental trauma because of the fact that we never got to experience safety or we never got to experience a sense of self that was self-sufficient or cared for or loved. So we don't even know how to look outside of that. We are forever sort of limited to that kind of thinking. So versus somebody in adult trauma can weave in and out of a resourceful state and a, and a paralyzed state, somebody with complex trauma doesn't know how to get to that resilient state. So they always are stuck in that kind of paralyzed state. So that's what's really terrible and sad and unfortunate about childhood trauma versus adult trauma. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So in a way, it becomes a loop, right? It's just a repetition of events, of behaviors. Yeah, that was definitely the case with me for for many years. And another question, the warm-up question is about healing. What are some of the obstacles to healing for most of us? I think access to the right kind of information is is really hard because when we go to heal and we read, for example, personal development books or self-improvement or self-help, we get a lot of mixed messages. So we can get a message such as no matter what, just do it. Don't listen to your fear. And unfortunately, there's a problem with that. Even though that works in the short term, what we're really doing is we're shutting off a big part of our biology and a big part of our our instinct. And because of that, we get more fragmented. So if I just had a breakup, and this I see with a lot of clients, is when someone has a breakup and their friends, all of the friends are saying, just get over him. He's not worthy of you. They're asking basically to deny a big part of of their grieving that needs to happen before they can move towards positivity. They need to acknowledge their feelings. They need to acknowledge the hurt and that something was taken from them. If we repress all of that, then unfortunately we attract the same partner because we didn't allow ourselves to do the learning. And if we were allowed to feel our feelings in a way that is, you know, guided by someone that knows about healing and how much we're supposed to push, we're supposed to stay on the edges of tolerance. We're supposed to take clients through certain experiences, but we're also supposed to invoke certain other imageries. And, you know, with that, the healing can be, you know, more comprehensive and and more proper healing. But because there's a lack of resources or there's a lot of mixed messages, people usually tend to have that barrier to to healing because they don't know what route to go. Yeah, that's another beautiful and much needed message. Thank you, Sammy. And with that in mind, let me ask this question about true healing or true healer. How do you define a true healer? How do we find one? What are the characteristics to look for? So um, a lot of times when people look for coaches or life coaches, they're like, I want someone that's tough. I want someone that's going to tell me all my flaws right up front. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I tend to disagree with that. I think that that's already what we have too much of. We're already doing that to ourselves. We're already beating ourselves up. So a true healer will kind of be, will allow you to get in touch with what your strengths are and will not point out or humiliate you or mock you for your weaknesses, but explain what those weaknesses are. Explain that we're fundamentally perfect, really as close to perfect as, as things get, just like nature is perfect, just like consciousness is perfect. We're perfect just the way we are. 
it's just there's certain things, certain preferences. I would like to be more of this. I'd like to wake up earlier in the morning. I would like to finish my tasks in time. So we have to explain that those preferences are not there because of certain patterns that have existed in the past or certain belief system and helps you get to those belief systems so you can shift them from the inside out, out being the behavior, inside being the belief, and really help to shift that. That's what a good healer, right, a a healer that really wants to make a difference in the world would approach it from that angle, not just using kind of that bullying, like you better do it. (laughs) Are you really going to repeat these patterns? That just reinforces what a lot of times people believe about themselves already in a negative way. So we don't want to do that as healers. So I would look for someone kind, compassionate, that teaches us uh, towards, you know, directs us towards self-compassion and self-love. You have a lot of experience with healing of your own and healing others. What have surprised you most about healing? Or what are some of the facts or some insights you have gained from those experiences? I would say the one of the most surprising things to me was how many different forms resistance can take. So when someone first starts healing their healing journey, they really do want to heal. But there's parts of them that are trying to protect them by keeping the status quo. And one of the ways they do that is a a client could have two really good sessions. um, For instance, their first two sessions with me and be like, my God, Sammy, that was amazing. I discovered so much about myself. And when we did that inner child work, I felt so free. I've never felt so free. But on their third, fourth session, some resistance might kick in. I'm so sorry I missed our session. I, I left my phone at my friend's house and, and I didn't realize it. It's amazing how the brain can create resistance even to positive change mm-hmm, because yeah. <laughs> it's trying yeah. to protect an identity because mm-hmm. an identity is mm-hmm. very safe to the subconscious. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's was very interesting to me to see different types of resistance that can come in, how much the person wants to heal, but how much their subconscious can want to keep them locked in those patterns. That's safety, right, Sammy? That's the reason. Yes. Those parts the we call parts of ourselves that is resisting to healing, it's trying to keep us safe. I love the idea that we can be kind with them too which is something that you do. It's beautiful, right? That we can treat those parts with kindness. Yes, yes, because their ultimate intention is to help us. They just are doing this in in a way that kept them safe in in childhood. So if being submissive to an angry father kept them safe, now when we teach them assertiveness, that part of them goes, no, that's what kept you safe from your dad. So you still have to be submissive. You still can't speak up. You still can't express your needs So that part will still resist the healing work that we do. Yeah, which is very limiting, right? I think I made this comment about kindness because throughout my own healing journey, the more I pushed away and I was very unkind to those parts of me, the more I was haunted by them. It was really, even dreams was interesting to see that. And then when I stopped doing that and accepted all of them, all of them, mm-hmm. just the way they are. Then it, it's not that they disappeared, but in a way they let whatever is in charge here <laughs> to do its work without getting I away. I guess because they felt validated and understood by you. So they changed their stance yeah. with you. 
How amazing, mm -hmm. <laughs> this whole, yeah. right, Sammy? It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Another yeah. question, the last warm-up question is this one. Do you connect healing to spirituality? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, without spirituality, healing can happen, but it does take very long. And there's not this inherent sense of something bigger than myself. But spirituality really connects you not just to other people and other things, but just to this greater synergy that exists among all of us. And that does make it so much easier, so much faster, so much more fun with spirituality. It's a whole another dimension. Yeah, I love the word that you use here, yeah, this component of playfulness and fun. Yes. <laughs> and I think I've been saying that probably throughout so many interviews here. <laughs> what is attachment theory and psychology? It's um, one of the most important topics that I think I've ever um, talked about. Attachment theory is the idea that our first bond with our caretakers that we form between the time that we're born until about age two is how we learn and conceptualize relationships for the rest of our lives. It pretty much stays consistent through our lives. Of course, there are ways to change that. And, you know, perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit later, but without a lot of intervention and a lot of healing and a lot of inner work, it's meant to stay consistent through our lives. So the way that our caretakers are responding to us when we're babies, the way they're looking at us, how much eye contact they're making is really what's teaching the baby if other people are safe or not, if their needs are met or not, if they deserve to have their needs met or not. Um, if, if they're valued, if they're important, if they're going to survive. So those are very important beliefs. So if we have a baby whose mom is very in tune or she's really making an effort to be in tune with the baby, is meeting the baby's needs as the baby's needs are supposed to be met unconditionally for at least for the first couple of years because they're so helpless, then the baby will learn that, okay, this world is a safe place. I'm allowed to have needs. I'm allowed to have my needs met. Other people care about me. And it's safe for me to care about other people. That's what the baby learns. And they grow up with a very secure sense of self. And these are the people as adults who will see um, that even though they might get slightly frustrated in relationships, they're very open to communication because they don't assume that they'll be rejected. Um, they are very likely to make up after a fight. They're less likely to walk out of, out of relationships. And they really value the relationships in their lives. However, on the other end of the spectrum, we might have parents that because of their own traumas or because of, you know, what's going on in their life financially at the moment, they may not be able to connect with the baby. So the baby might be crying and they, if they're pushing away the baby to go fight with the spouse and they're not really attuned to the baby's needs, the baby learns that, okay, I, it seems to me that my caretakers, the people that are supposed to look over me are in extreme distress. So I cannot put more stress on my caretakers, because if so, they will get more distressed and they will be less capable of taking care of me. So I have to shut down my needs so that they um, can do what they need to do and I can at least survive. If I, if I don't cry, then I will at least survive. And that's their goal is to not add stress to their parents or their caretakers. So they learn to literally shut off signals from their body to their minds and they create this kind of very disassociated state where they don't even know what their needs are. 
right? So that's one of the ways that babies will respond. Another way is they tend to get very angry and very hostile and they learn to like throw things and they learn to just cry unnecessarily because they're just frustrated all the time because they're angry because again, they're very narcissistic. We're born very narcissistic. We're, we're, it's through socialization that we actually learn to be uh, giving and caring. But our real nature uh, through our biology is that of uh, I care about myself. So because of that, they're very frustrated and angry at the caretakers. And so they tend to form beliefs very early on that relationships are not safe. I cannot trust other people. If there's anybody looking out for me, it's me. Um, You know, if somebody is not paying attention to me, that means they don't love me and I must walk out on that relationship. And can form all of these beliefs that carry with them through adult relationships and they become very hyper vigilant for any sign of abuse or neglect and they either really really walk out on relationships really fast and they can shut their feelings off or if they did receive a little bit of love every now and then from their parents then they form an anxious attachment style in which they're very clingy very needy if somebody wants to go spend time with somebody else, their partner wants to go spend time with their friends, they'll get very hypervigilant about, oh my God, what what is she doing right now? Who's she talking to? Is she talking to another guy? And they can form a very insecure attachment. And this is all related to how we're treated, uh, you know, during that very important period of our lives when we're babies. That is amazing how much it goes on. So in a way, it's the biologist, the body that does it. Right, Sammy. Of course, in Correct. conjunction with the mind, the brain, intuitively and naturally, we act, we form these identities, these ideas about ourselves, others in life. Yes. I can very much see that happening throughout my life, the way I attached to my to everyone, especially in romantic relationships, which mm-hmm. was more of the clinging and it was very submissive to because I had been abused. So mm. I remember that. And then now it's still here, though, because I see with my husband, my current husband, that I still mm. have that happening where when he talks to me in a way, uh, go do this or whatever it is, I just do it and I don't kind of answer back. Why? So that's interesting how we don't really, it seems to me like we don't get rid of them in a way, those parts of us who have these constructed yes. ideas. Yes. So when you're seeing that tone or you're seeing kind of uh, maybe a dismissive attitude or a little bit of neglect or anything like that, or your feelings are not validated or heard, your child brain is becoming active and it's saying it's the same situation as before. So Valerie, respond in the same way that you did back then. So it's literally taking you out of your adult brain and it's putting you back in that very primitive, you know, situation. And that's, that's what you're feeling initially. But because you're an adult and you've done so much work, you're ultimately able to step in. But sometimes your initial reaction might even surprise you. Why am I still having this kind of reaction initially, even, you know, even for a moment? That's why we, this kind of understanding can really help that healing. Is um, okay, this is why I'm feeling that way. Reading the article, I see that the process of healing, it's Understanding, as you just said, using that word. So understanding alone would change the behavior, Sammy? 
Um, understanding alone helps us depersonalize. So before we might feel like victims, before we understand this, we feel like victims. I, I am a victim to this person. This person seems to be in control as they're yelling at me and I'm responding in this way. This means something's wrong with me and I'm not as strong as them, which is leading us down another spiral. But what's happening by understanding and by no means is understanding the only step, but it's a very important step because we can say, okay, this is actually a shared response. This is this person doing this, but then also my primitive brain is getting triggered. So maybe I'm not entirely a victim of this person in front of me right now. But if anything, at least it's all of these factors that are contributing to it right now. I'm hypervigilant. Their tone is taking me back to something that happened in my childhood. Okay, then perhaps this moment is not to blame in its entirety, which kind of shifts the blame a little bit. And it can allow for that intervention that we might need. But of course, there's a lot of other things that go into it. We have to reteach our body how to breathe during those times. We have to regulate the nervous system in a different way. We have to relive certain traumatic experiences, but this time do it from a place of safety with the, you know, the therapist right there with you, somebody that is, uh, you know, well-versed in attachment theory, helping you through that. So you can relive those experiences in a different way, store those memories in a different place. So the next time there's an argument, let's say with a husband, then instead of the old memories, it's now going back to the new memories we formed about childhood with our therapist, because they took us through inner child and created safety and then locked it in the body. That's basically it that I, I wanted to explain that, yes, understanding is the first step, but then we must do some of these other, you know, techniques as well so that we can really, we don't have to understand every time. We can just have a knee jerk reaction of, oh, that's another human being that's in pain that's in front of me right now. They have this kind of attachment style. I understand that their parents were uh, perhaps a little neglectful and when they didn't uh, had their needs met, they responded with a little bit more anger. So I could see how their core wound is triggered right now. Perhaps I said, why didn't you take out the trash? And that triggered their core wound of their mom perhaps was very critical or nothing they did was ever good enough. So that's probably why they're responding to me right now. So it creates that understanding, Valerie. But we, we also want to move beyond understanding sometimes. We just want our nervous system to just not get triggered in the first place. So that's why it's a more comprehensive work that we do with attachment. Going back to the four types of attachment, actually before that, because you mentioned, I think, one or two of them, the anxious or maybe all of them, you know, I was just kind of fixed on the anxious, preoccupied, the dismissive, avoidant. Also, the secure is the first one, and then fearful. Oh, so the dismissive, avoidant, uh, fearful, avoidance is the same one, right? And then uh, disorganized, disoriented attachment. I'm so sorry um, about that. I, I realize uh, that the final category wasn't very clear. So the disorganized, disoriented attachment is the same as the fearful, avoidant. Oh, okay. So dismissive is not fearful at all. Dismissive is someone that just walks out on relationships and has no problems. Right. What are the signs when we need to look, seek healing work, let's say a therapist like yourself or, or any other kinds of healing? Mm, great question. Um, and this is something that I really feel like everyone should be aware of is that when we see a pattern, right, we, we seem to be attracting the same types of people or we seem to be showing the same kind of behaviors and relationships 
And it stops being a coincidence at that point. And we really sit back and wonder, huh, (laughs) the the last two or three (laughs) relationships that I've been in have treated me like this. Maybe it's something about me. It's possible. It's okay to look within, right? A lot of times people are afraid to look within because then they're like, well, am I just going to plant ideas in my head that something's wrong with me? No, a simple curiosity is not going to plant ideas in our head. We stay open and we just ask this question what it is about this type of, of relationship pattern that could have some kind of similarity with my earlier experiences or my past or could have anything in common with perhaps my parents or that that even 10 months I went and lived with my aunt in, you know, uh, another another state and my parents weren't there. Could I have learned this attachment style from her or could she be influencing it? So really looking at early childhood experiences as a result of seeing patterns. But I think the pattern is the first thing to really keep in mind. If we had one relationship that didn't, you know, that didn't end well, that doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with our attachment style. But if a few of them have ended the same way, then we could really, you know, look at ourselves and our attachment style. Yeah, that was definitely my case. (laughs) For sure, Mm. my case. And it still is, though. Now, if you ask me, how would you describe your husband? I would not say that he's similar to my mother and father, but the truth is mm-hmm. he is. <laughs> and that's, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say that because I would describe him in a different way as an adult that sees myself, others in life differently after the realizations I had from the spiritual point of view. Yes. And a lot of times uh, children that have been abused or have experienced pain with their caretakers will oftentimes select partners that are seemingly very different or outwardly very different. But in the ways that we look for similarity is not, um, you know, how they talk or how they treat us, but which core wounds they they trigger in us. So for example, um, abandonment. So if we had a parent that was just go away, don't bother me right now. Don't bother daddy when he's watching TV, right? Our, our partner may not say those exact words, But perhaps they say something like, you know, I really like going on trips with my friends. So, you know, like if it's okay, I'd like to do that two or three times a year where I really go on these trips with my friends. I don't want to miss it. They trigger, they might trigger the exact same, I'm not enough or kind of attachment wound in us, or I don't, or I'm disconnected or I'm rejected or I'm abandoned and alone. So outwardly, we will, those of us that have been abused, We'll try to stay as far away from anyone that reminds us of our parents, but we tend to attract, our subconscious attracts the ones that trigger the same kind of wounds of, I'm not worthy, I'm not important, I'm excluded. So that's how we look for similarities as in the core wounds, not so much in in, in, you know, traits that are uh, very obvious. Because it goes, yeah, it runs deeper than that. It makes so much sense. It is, um, it has been the case with me. And I was just wondering the other day about abuse because I was abused uh, physically and emotionally. So oh. I was just kind of wondering, mm-hmm. how does it affect me? Just kind of reflecting, oh, how's the personality, the body, the mind now? They still highly affected, like the way I behave with other people, that I'm, I always try to be kind to everyone and, yeah, have a hard time saying no. And that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. It might be, those are still the traces, right, Sammy, of the personality that was formed back then. And it's still yes. here. 
Mm. And it's a there is a very, very important um, distinction here that we have to make that will really shed some light on this. Um, so if, for instance, you were abused and you were abused um, by, let, let's say, both parents and both of them um, were uh also didn't show you love at all. So for instance, let's say that, you know, uh, let's say your mom, for example, locked you in the bathroom, right? And then she left you there and then she let you out, but she didn't even attach with you then. And she just let you just be and just never cared. And same with your father. Then you would form more of a dismissive attachment style where you would not want to be kind. You would not want to listen. You would have no trouble saying no. In fact, you would have such walls up because you would have learned that no matter what, I'm not worthy of love. So I'm not even going to put myself in a situation that gets me any love because it's just going to be a farce anyway. However, I believe it's a lot more worse and, and a lot more pernicious when we have a parent that abuses us physically and emotionally, but then also shows us a little bit of love and consideration every now and then. That is very extremely dangerous for the child because what happens is they learn to be what's called anxiously attached, which is, you know, the second attachment that I talk about, in which they're like, no, 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 I can still get love. I'm still... I'm still able to get love if I just do all the right things, if I just say yes to everything, because these are parents that abused us, but also said things like, oh, my baby, like, I'm so sorry that happened. Or they'll be like, do you want something to eat? Or they praised us for doing well in school or they praised very selective behaviors, but then also abused us because that teaches us that we are not worthy of love or otherwise this abuse wouldn't be happening. But if we try hard enough and if we just hypervigilantly watch every single action of our parents and we learn to read their faces and their behaviors, then we have a small chance of, of, of getting their love. And that's how we form a personality that's extremely kind because we're very considerate of others. We have to be. It's linked to our survival now because that's how we receive love is by being hyper aware. But the big problem with this is that because we're so hyper aware, we're also simultaneously scanning for danger. So we're almost doing that, repeating that cycle with ourselves in adulthood where we want to attach and we are pleasing and we are very um, loving towards our partners and others, other relationships, but we're simultaneously expecting the rejection and the abuse. So we're also simultaneously pulling away from them every chance we get. So we're hypersensitive to their words and their words reinforce our belief that, see, this person's going to hurt us. See, he's not safe. Um, see, I shouldn't have done that. So we're simultaneously trying to receive love and reject that person at the same time. And it's a very painful, it's one of the most painful attachment styles that we can have out of all of these four that I covered. This one is definitely the one that is the most painful, hurtful, and it's also one of the most difficult ones to rewire. So if someone's done a lot of work on themselves, but they have this attachment style still, and they're like, Sammy, how come after eight years of working on myself, I still have this pattern? I tell them, be easy on yourself, because this is literally, it's like a soup where you put in all these vegetables and you've cooked them for so long that now the vegetables are part of the water and we have a harder time separating the original essence of who you are uh, from that water. If the water is the trauma and the, the vegetables are the true essence of you, they're very mushy. Everything's mixed together. So, but it is healable. I have done it and I have seen it done. So there's that hopeful aspect of it. So what I see in you is more of this where they did show you love at certain times and they did give you that hope, but they also taught you that it was not safe to connect with them. 
So you find yourself oscillating a little bit between that, you know, wanting love, but then also feeling like if I get too close, I will get hurt. And that comes true because of the hypervigilance, watching the other person's reactions. So they might just be in a bad mood or tired. Somebody with a secure attachment pattern would see that for what it is. But someone with this attachment style would be like, oh, it's probably something I said this morning. They're still sulking about that. I can't believe they're holding on to that. And it creates those stories because that's what kept us safe. That really sounds like me, (laughs) the body, Mm -hmm. mind. It really sounds like. So that would be the anxious, preoccupied attachment style. Uh, yes. And another word uh, for that, and it's part of the attachment cell, but it's, um, you know, a little bit lower that I talk about is the fearful avoidant mm, yeah. in which you're anxiously yeah. attached, yeah. but then you also can become very avoidant when mm. you're hurt or when you have proof of hurt. If that doesn't make it easier. It's not easy at all. As you said, it's one of the worst ones type of attachments. doesn't make it easier yes. when you are with somebody who is constantly reminding you, bringing those parts back. That's even more challenging. Yeah, I see that happening. That's interesting because I can see it's almost like um, I have become some sort of uh, the watcher, the observer, the witness of the human experience, how it happens. Of course, mm-hmm. it's without denying it, it still hurts and it still makes me feel in, in a certain way that I, I don't want to feel because I have learned to kind of not only accept everything that's happening, but that life does what it does for a reason, not that it's kind of reasoning what will happen, but there is some sort of, um, I have seen like from this attachment, for example, this relationship I am now, how many good things have happened that have not just helped myself, but my husband and other people. Let me see if I'm communicating the message clearly. So it's almost like being able to see the big picture of this. Like, despite of all the pain and the, the traumas and the, the current situation, the, the, how life is, which it is unfolding, it's still leading all of us to, to a place which is not a place of love, of unconditional love. Yes, absolutely. And that's what, um, you know, is post-trauma growth. And I tell people, You might feel at first when you're doing the work, you might feel like, oh my gosh, I would love to be in a place where I didn't have to do this. But what you receive at the end of all of this is something way bigger than, let's say, somebody with no trauma at all. Because somebody with no trauma at all might have certain things that they don't see as deeply, or they tend to have a certain innocence, or they, you know, might take certain things for granted. But with, uh, people like us who've done the healing, we get to a place that's much bigger than a place of no trauma. Post-trauma growth is one of the greatest uh, joys that we can have because it really connects us, like you said, with this really big picture. And we have so much wisdom and we can really feel things at a much deeper level. And that's why we'll see some of these greatest artists like writers and, and, you know, Mozart and, you know, musicians is because they came from a place of resonating with their pain and they're able to connect with humanity on such Mm. a bigger level because of their pain. Yeah, that's such a paradox, right, Sammy? Yes. That we can do that. (laughs) We can (laughs) see the big picture of unconditional love, of love amongst all the pain and the suffering. 
yes. uh, while living it even. Why is the attachment theory still a theory? <laughs> that was a question that came to me. <laughs> It's just that, um, you know, usually when we, you know, in the scientific community, when we go from a theory, right, to to a fact, we do certain studies and we observe certain things and then we get responses from the participants and we have a control group and then we have a non-control group with babies, it's not that easy, right, to to get their responses and to have them check on, uh, you know, a, a questionnaire that says, you know, what level of distress do you feel when your parent, you know, walks out instead of attuning to your needs. So just like a lot of different theories, which are not quantifiable, if we can't mathematically show that the participant checked off this box, we can only call it a, a theory right? We can't really just say this is exactly what happens because it wouldn't meet the metrics, right, of of that. But I think all of us that really read it and understand it can experientially say, oh yeah, this is way more than a theory. This is my whole experience of how I've approached relationships. This explains so much about my partner and their childhood experiences. So I believe that for me, it's a fact and it's it's a truth, but um, it gets labeled as, as theory again because of that limitation that we can't really do test groups with, with babies. That makes sense. The scientific world is very different. It's based on evidence, right? And there are so many ways of measuring those evidence. Yes. So we're almost at the end. I do have the ending questions. But before that, Sammy, would you like to add anything else that we didn't cover? Um, really just wanted to reiterate that, um, you know, for those of uh, for those of you that are looking at the article, I just wanted to explain that the fearful avoidance style and the disorganized um, style is basically the same thing. Yeah. So that's uh, a very good observation that I, I actually saw that, but I was not clear. What do you love most about being in a human body as of today? Well, human body gives us access to a whole variety of emotions versus the mind is not capable of of that much emotion by itself. So the mind is actually reading a lot of the emotions and interpreting a lot of the emotions we're experiencing in the body. So I know in the Western world, there's a lot of focus on the mind and there's a disconnect from the body. But I love being in a human body because it Mm -hmm. really puts me at a deeper layer of understanding and gives me the capability to feel emotion at a very deep level. Mm. Yes. Yeah. The humanity of it. It's just a great experience. I mean, it's the most amazing thing. It's magical to me. How do you describe love or true love? So true love is... Exactly what I explained about uh, secure uh, attachment parents. Um, So love is really not just about having fun and just being a friend, right? Love is about making difficult choices and making sure that someone that is not capable of handling a certain experience, like we see this with children that want to give their children, uh, sorry, parents that want to give their children a secure attachment, they will curate their experiences. That's the biggest mark of of love is that you filter experiences for someone that doesn't have the level of understanding or has too much innocence. We protect them and shield them from certain things until we feel like they're ready to handle them. I feel like that is love. That has a certain element of self-sacrifice, putting aside our needs every now and then. We don't want to self-sacrifice to the point where that's all we do but we want to be able to weave in and out of self-sacrifice and asserting our needs as well as caring for the other. 
And it's almost like a dance. Like you mentioned the dance earlier. I love that analogy. So love is a dance where we must keep a healthy balance of caring for the other and caring for ourselves in the relationship and not losing mm. ourselves in the relationship. Beautifully said. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Sammy. You're such an insightful guest, person, human being, soul. <laughs> it's just <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. So before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your services, your projects, articles, and, and other uh, ideas? In your book, I think you, um, you mentioned, I think last year, about writing a book. Yes, yes. I do plan to write a book at the current time. I'm, um, you know, also uh, completing a marriage and family therapy, you know, certification. So once I'm done with that, then I will move towards my writing project. But the best way to find me is www.dontwaittolive.com. Wonderful. And that has all of the information about me. Beautiful. I'll have the website on the podcast profile. Thank you so much again, Sammy, for your presence here Thank today. Thank you, Valerie. We'll talk soon. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Me too. Bye for now, Sammy. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Saman Nasir and her work, please visit don'twaittolive.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.